Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. My guest today is Kathy Ray, a single mum of two girls, an editor and freelance journalist for publications like Glamour and The Guardian and Disability Consultant. Kathy was born with achondroplasia and her daughters were too. She recently contributed to We've Got This, a book of essays and reflections on disabled parenting. And she joins me today to share her experiences. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. You said that you um you you weren't quite awake. Is that it, the, the clocks have changed just in the week yeah, that we're recording they, this? Has that affected you? I don't know why, but like it's only an hour. It doesn't really affect me much, but it affects the kids, and then that affects me, right? Yeah. And uh, they've just been really tired the last two days. It's been uh, yeah, a struggle. It's hard, isn't it? Because your kids are they are they four and eight. They're five and eight. Five and eight. And even that you think once they're out of the baby and toddler phase, something like the clock change, it's all good, it's fine. But it does yeah. still affect them, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. And in my kids' cases, they just they get really tired. And I think that might be partly a disability thing as well, because life is just more exhausting for us. Yeah. Um but I don't obviously I don't really remember being I remember being a tired kid. But I don't remember how tired I was or what my boundaries were around that. As so I'm kind of learning this with my kids, because obviously mine are different now. I'm an adult, right? And um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Well, also, I guess I'm 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 guessing as well that when you're a kid um, with a disability, you have nothing to compare it to. All you've got is your experience. So how do you know whether you're more tired or less tired than right. your friends? Right, exactly. And then, but then what's interesting is that, like, even as a kid growing up with achondroplasia with no history of it in my family, um, we were a big, my, my parents made a big effort for us to be uh, very involved in uh, dwarfism communities. And um, so I actually knew a lot of people growing up with dwarfism, and my parents got a lot of advice and learned a lot from other people. Um, but even when you meet those people and what and you get to learn things that are like symptomatic of your disability that nobody actually really talks about if they don't have dwarfism it obviously just like with non-disabled people there's a spectrum of everything right and so I used to think well I'm more tired than like one of my friends who's still my friend now and it's just because she's a particularly active person even though she has dwarfism right and so it's in it's funny because you can get in that 
kind of mindset of like oh well that's because I have dwarfism but it's dwarfism but also it's just my body and my level of fitness and my lifestyle and everything else yeah and, yeah you know. and um I mean it sounds like from, from the way you describe your parents it sounds like they were and are amazing and you know really did everything they could as much as they could to help you um what was your childhood like? like and what kind of conversations have you had with your parents now that you're a parent yourself? Have you kind of chatted to them about what it was like for them to get, give birth to a baby that had dwarfism and everything else that came with it for them as parents? Yeah, um, I we've talked about it quite a lot. My mum always used to talk about it when I was growing up as well, like in the sense of, you know, she used to tell me, well, doctors used to say, um, because they didn't know that I had dwarfism until I was born. They um there were less scans back then, I guess, and also they weren't looking for it and stuff like that. And so I was born, and then the doctors were like, "Oh no, there's a problem." And um, but my parents just like weren't. I don't know. They describe it as they weren't at all phased by it, and they were totally cool with it. I don't know what it was like in reality. I'm sure they had a moment of shock, because why wouldn't they? Um. And um, I would have a moment of shock if I gave birth to a child that, that had a different disability. Like, it's natural. It's, it, it's normal to, to feel that. It doesn't make you a bad parent. Um, yeah. uh, but they were very, like, you know, they loved me from the beginning and they were accepting from the beginning. And they just, I don't know, they just kind of knew that they had a bit of extra work to do. And they were like, they rolled up their sleeves and they started doing it. Um, especially my mum and um, just because of not because my dad was any more less active but just you know the way parent roles are I guess um, and um, yeah so I was uh, I do say I was lucky I don't like using that phrase because I think it's deserved of all people as a bare minimum of how your parents should be but I do recognize that lots of parents aren't like that and it was the late 80s you were born wasn't it yeah yeah. So attitudes to things like dwarfism. I mean, we're not even where we should be now today in 2023. There's still a lot of ableism. Right. But back then, like it must have been on a different scale. Yeah. No, there was loads, definitely. The funny thing about dwarfism is even when even back then, um, when you're a baby who has dwarfism, I mean, obviously I I didn't um I didn't register any ableism, but um, but everyone just thinks you're really cute because mm. you're like a mini baby. And you look, you look so super squishy. You've got like all these bunched up arms and bunched up legs and everyone's just like, oh, so adorable. But it's then as you grow older and the differences become more pronounced and the height difference becomes more pronounced, that's when you suddenly become a victim of bullying and ableism and, you know, you realise inaccessibility and stuff like that. But actually as a baby and stuff, it's very kind of, yeah, there just isn't. And I, I've seen that through having my own children, you know, and how they have, how they were treated as babies and how they're treated by society now is, is very, very different. What kind of age were you when you realised yourself that you wanted to have your own children? Um, Really young. I So I really wanted my parents to have more kids after me. My dad has two kids, but from a previous marriage. So my siblings lived together with their mum. And I saw them regularly, but not that regularly because we moved uh, quite far away from them. And um, and I always just felt jealous that they had each other and I didn't have anybody in the house. Um, So I begged my parents for another kid and stuff. And 
through circumstances that were no fault of their own, they were unable to have anymore. Um, and then so kind of once that was put to bed, I was like, well, I, if I'm going to have kids, I want to make sure I have more than one. And I just had it really set in my mind. I always wanted a busy house. I grew up in really um, in a really poor area of the country, um, very rural North Norfolk. And um, a lot of the families I grew up around, we grew, I, I lived on council estates, um, were very big. And I wanted that. I wanted this huge family, chaotic, messy lifestyle. Um, even where the mum was like shouting at the kids and stuff, I was like, this is great. I love this. Um, and um, yeah, not that's not to say that that only happens in working class families. I know it doesn't, but that was just my experience growing up on the council estate. And so, yeah, I just, I I had it fixed very early on. And as I said, like once I realised my mum couldn't have, my parents couldn't have any more kids, um that was just became my kind of mission to have my own and you've said that for a long time you felt like it would never happen for you is that isn't that the case yeah I felt like I I don't know if I felt like it would never happen I felt like there would be there would be barriers I just felt like it would be hard like maybe I think I'd at the time that I was feeling that which was like in my late 20s more um I knew a lot of people who experienced infertility and who had, um, you know, chronic illnesses that meant that pregnancy was a risk and things like that. Um, and I I just, I got scared and I just thought, oh, maybe this is going to be too difficult for me to do. Maybe my body won't be able to handle it. I'm not as fit as my other fit friend who has dwarfism. Um, and, you know, maybe I, maybe I just, yeah, it will just be too difficult and I won't be able to have kids. What are the limitations? If you have dwarfism, are there any more risks to pregnancy? Or you've talked about how when you had your kids, lifting them could be quite quite tricky for you. Sure. Did you find the same when you were when you had a bump and you were carrying that extra weight? Yeah. What was really weird for me? Well, one one slight advantage to that in terms of our bodies as parents is that um so we have to have C sections. And it is a huge medical risk if if we suddenly go into labour. So we have to have a C-section in in advance, well in advance, so that there's like literally 0.01% of going to into labour risk. Um, so and with my first daughter, she was premature anyway. So she was born at seven months and my bump was tiny. I just didn't really grow. My belly just hardened. And that was just my genetic makeup that did that. There's no, there's, and that's not a thing like within dwarfism some bellies can be huge some some aren't but like mine just didn't really grow and so it wasn't until that last couple of weeks that I really felt a massive difference and I was just um you know when I because I had no kids at home I was able to relax a lot more and take it easy um and I lived not far from where I worked at the time and then with my second daughter, that was definitely a bit harder because I already had another kid at home. I was physically exerting myself always with her, um, especially because dwarfism means that she's physically delayed. So although she was three and a half, she required me to do a lot for her still. Um, and um, and I carried my second to uh, eight months. And so that last, yeah, last month and a bit was hard. But I don't know that it's 
that much harder than it is for an average height parent. I've, I've got no idea because obviously yeah. I don't have an average height body. Um, but from what I hear um, and from what I particularly experienced, it, it definitely wasn't. But I was also really lucky because I didn't have any issues like, I don't know, preeclampsia or um, diabetes or things that can come on in pregnancy. I didn't have any of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I just had a a relatively smooth, other than the premature birth, a relatively smooth experience. You said that you had a, a pretty traumatic um, conversation with a sonographer, was it, when they basically said, spoke to you as if your baby having dwarfism meant that, that it had something wrong with it. Did yeah. you Did you experience much of that kind of, those sort of conversations with, with health workers or? No, not, that was a one-off. I mean, it was, it was a horrible thing for them to kind of, a horrible way for them to approach the conversation. But um, as per my personality, I scolded them and told them why that wasn't okay. And, and they were mortified and then that was it. Um, I think that me having the same disability meant that a lot of people couldn't show, were afraid to show ableism, in fact. And there was a lot of kind of eggshells being walked on by medical professionals around my pregnancies that I just don't think would be afforded to average height adults having kids with dwarfism yeah yeah. I don't think it would be the same um and that's really sad because they're the ones that actually need the reassurance and the acceptance because they're the ones who'll be like freaking out that um that their baby's going to be different to how they imagined right and um and they're the ones that that need people who are going to tell them oh no it's going to be okay and you know you're going to have to do this differently but your baby's going to be loved and you know all of these things um so yeah that's so good that you that you were able to challenge that person. I think so many of us, especially in you know a hospital environment where these people are experts, it can feel really hard to actually say, actually, what you've just said isn't okay, or yeah. you know. So that's that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, in that particular situation, I, I felt quite empowered. I had my husband next to me. We were both like, "What are you doing?" and um, and we just we just challenged it I don't challenge it every time because it's exhausting if you challenge every single bit of ableism that you come across but that just really like in the moment stuck out to me as like a massive um error on their part that I just really didn't want them to impart in the future and obviously I'm not naive to say that they wouldn't necessarily exhibit ableism in the future but hopefully by me calling it out what it was that might have helped them to reflect a little bit. Yeah. Um, now, with your um, first daughter being um, premature, um, mm. you said that in the first few months of her life, you suffer from postnatal depression. Do yeah. you think that that was a direct response to having an, an emergency C-section at seven months and being thrust into motherhood almost a lot, you know, a lot earlier than you were imagining. Yeah. I mean, we, we weren't ready um, at all. I'm not, I'm not like the greatest at preparing for things anyway. I mean, I wasn't even prepared for this Zoom call today because my headphones don't work. But um, <laughs> um, so, but we really weren't ready. I bought a Moses basket, but nothing else. Um and you know I had a few bits of clothing that were like given to us but because she was so tiny a because she had dwarfism and b because she was 
premature. She'd have fit into like everything drowned her. Um, and I think I had this, I don't know, I just had this fairy tale of how how that was all gonna go and and it didn't involve her staying in hospital for seven and a half weeks that was an hour away from our house that we couldn't get to because we didn't have a car and all of that you know and um there was just a lot of grief I had to I had to move through in the first kind of six months of her life really because it nothing everything was so much harder than um than I had anticipated and part of that was naivety and not being prepared and not not reading up on things either you know I didn't know anything about premature babies I knew they existed but I didn't know how that worked and what that meant for parents and things like that and I wish I had I wish I had known I wish I had known some people to tell me stuff like that just so because I just felt like very alone in that experience and everybody else I knew that either had children or were having children didn't have that experience and so I was just like well who do I talk to about this and it's like nobody you know there are obviously charities and so I didn't want to talk to a stranger I wanted to talk to someone that understood me yeah um, so yeah it was um it was difficult and then she when she came home um she was because she was so early she had really bad um digestive issues um really severe sorry digestive issues and also respiratory issues so we were constantly on watch with her and it just felt like um more than more than the average baby like we just couldn't leave her alone when we were feeding her we were also terrified because she would choke a lot or she would um not choke but she would um cough a lot and splutter and be sick and um and she got like writhing tummy pains and colic and really bad really bad wind because her her body just wasn't ready for what was happening um yeah and uh yeah it just all of that just meant that like yeah that first six months was was hard <laughs> so it strikes me then that you know a few a few years later when you went on to have your second daughter that feeling that you described earlier of really wanting more than one child to create mm. that noisy messy atmosphere must have been such a strong feeling to I yeah, guess yeah that was that was unwavering because I knew we were going to get through what we got through with my first you know it was yeah. awful but it was a short like I mean and also it was amazing because don't get me wrong like having a baby is amazing but that the first six months was was hard um but yeah, I don't know. It just it was unwavering. I was just like, no, I'm definitely gonna have another one. And I was I was um second time around, you know, uh managed to have her at eight months. And I think, you know, her system was a lot more mature than my first. And so we didn't have any issues. She was an incredible sleeper from the beginning. It was just very, very easy. My personal life was a dumpster fire, but my baby my life with my babies was was great. Um so yeah, it, it's luck of the draw as to whether you know kids can be different, and you can have the same parents and treat them in the same way, but they're still going to be different. So true, so true. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Um, so how do you think that your experiences of parenting has been different then because of your disability? Um, God, so many ways. Um, I, so like with my first, I went to some mother and baby groups at the beginning, especially because we lived somewhere. We had just moved to um, the county of Hampshire. We don't live there anymore, but we had just moved there. And um, I didn't know anyone. So we moved there when I was five months and then I had her at seven months. And I didn't, I literally knew nobody apart from my office mates who I didn't really know well. And I, so I joined a few mother and baby groups. Um, I found those really hard because I found myself comparing myself and my situation to theirs a lot, to other uh, parents in the group and um, which obviously on the surface look a lot easier than they probably are in real life, right? And a lot more put together than they probably are in real life. But um, but when you're sleep deprived and you're emotional and you know your baby cries a lot and stuff and your back hurts, it's it's hard, it's tough. And I remember I used to go to a group that was just opposite where I literally opposite where I live, two minute walk with my with my first kid and um and then when we got home, I would just sit on the sofa with her for five hours because I was wiped out. And obviously that that's not like the average experience of a parent. Yeah. Um, but everything was just so much more tiring. And part of that was because she cried a lot. Um, but part of it was obviously because we, we were both disabled um, and I was the primary caregiver. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely like you have to the way that you have to manage your energy is so so precious like you have to really think it out um and I've got to balance that also with the mental health issue of like if I stay indoors all day every day obviously I'm going to feel really depressed so I need to go out um but I have to figure out what are the safest environments for for me to go out where I don't end up feeling worse um, but I can have some kind of interactions. And unfortunately, with my first kid, I just didn't. I never figured that out. Um, and with my second, I didn't go to any mother and child groups or mother and baby groups, toddler groups, whatever. But I, by that point, we had moved um, to where we live now. And um, I had lots of friends. And so loads of people came to visit me. I went to other people. And so my maternity, I started volunteering at a local mother and baby, like, um play space um where I didn't have to get involved in any of the politics if I didn't want to I could just like be around other people with with my baby and stuff and 
yeah, uh, the experience was just a lot, a lot better for me. But I guess, yeah, the first time around, I just, firstly, I didn't have any friends and stuff anyway, but also I didn't, I didn't anticipate how different the experience would be and how isolated it would then make me feel to be in a room full of people who all had a baby but were were experiencing a trajectory of motherhood that was so different to mine. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's what's so valuable about things like the, the, the book, We Got This, in that you have this collection of parents sharing their experiences and that is such an amazing tool for prospective disabled parents to read yeah and soak in all of those you know those those experiences definitely I mean nothing can prepare you for being a parent but yeah that kind of thing just hasn't existed before and I think it's really powerful and reading the book myself like because I hadn't read any of the other contributions before it was uh, published and you know reading all the different experiences that are in it it's so rich with different experiences and it's so valuable because it's like you know you've got disabled parents who um have children through IVF or who adopt which and obviously that's going to be a really different situation to mine you've got disabled parents who are single you've got disabled parents who are in a couple um you've got a disabled parent who is uh in a couple with another disabled person or not with a disabled person you know and it's it's all really different and whilst whilst the experiences of me a single mom who has dwarfism with two kids who have dwarfism is not going to be exactly the same as another single mom who has dwarfism with two kids who have dwarfism even if you go through all the identity factors it's never going to be the same there are going to be so many like strands where you can relate and feel seen in a way that you can't by traditional motherhood and what kind of parts do you feel social media has played in helping disabled parents I mean I'm guessing that it's a double-edged sword just like social media is across the board in terms of you know it gives people platforms and it, it connects people and to share their experiences but then you've it also creates a space for trolls to come in and people to I guess be ignorant and share their ignorant views with you how have you kind of found that over the years um I don't um up until I recently made the decision not to share my children anymore or their personalities on social media um so I might share things that we've been doing um but I don't want to share them and the reason I made that decision is a few reasons but up until that point I had shared them I'd shared like things that um things about them and people had a flavor of who they were obviously only a flavor because I would only share a bit but you know how we like to um we like to generalize like if someone's bossy one day if it's my kid or someone else you know we think oh that's a bossy person and so I what I hadn't anticipated was that the flattening of their identities or my identity that would occur through sharing on social media and I and and I began to feel increasingly uncomfortable with the messages I would get like oh I'm sure Mariana your oldest kid would love this or I'm sure she would react like this to this Mm, and I'm like oh you don't know her actually you only know what I what I share and that is a very small part and obviously what I share is going to be uh through the glass through my own glasses through my own perspective um and my own trauma and my own baggage and so it's not fact either you know And so um, I didn't like that. And I, 
yeah, the reason I shared for so long anyway was because I felt like there are so few disabled parents uh, in the public eye who have disabled children uh, in the UK. There's me and Nina Tame, you know, um, and like we're both white middle class people. Um, and uh, and that but that's it, you know, and um, I, I mean, forgive me if there are other people, but there aren't other people that I that I know of. And so um, I I felt like it was really valuable to to share. And I had a couple of friends in other countries who um, have dwarfism and have kids who have dwarfism who share on social media. And I thought, no, nah, this is great. Um, but yeah, it, over the years, I kind of I kind of thought, actually, this isn't my decision to make. This is my kid's decision to make. And um and whilst I can kind of dress it up as I'm doing it for representation, what's it really, what, like, what is it actually changing and achieving? Um, and also, and also how will they feel about it when, you know, when they're a bit older, you know, you've got no guarantee that they're going to be like, yes, mum, thanks so much for sharing my life on the internet for the greater good. Right. They might be like, you know, F you. Yeah. Can't believe you did that, you know. Right, exactly. And um yeah. And I just yeah. So yeah, that was a recent decision I made. But I know it's a contentious issue and I know a lot of parents, like not just disabled parents, any parent that is any mother particularly that is that is on social media has very different views on this. Um and I, you know, I respect other people's views and I see both sides just like just like with all aspects of parenting we all do it differently we always make decisions that feel right for us at the time for our kids exactly and you know I think yeah yeah so that's that's where I've kind of landed on it but it's taken me a long time to get there yeah but it's a tricky one to work work through I think Um, it is definitely and I think as well like if I'm totally honest the monetary value of sharing your kids is very tempting because you also want to provide a better life for them. Yeah. Right. And um, the ads and stuff that, that always make it always brings more opportunity if you've got children. That's so true. Um, And again, I've become increasingly uncomfortable with that, even though my, my kids have always been up for it. You know, they don't, they don't understand at this age like they can't appreciate the so and they may well feel differently in the future so yeah yeah even if they're begging you now to like uh, my eldest who's 12 now when she was around seven or eight she went through a real phase of begging to start her own youtube channel i was like no way in hell are you starting your own youtube channel but i really want to and i'm like yeah but 18 year old you might really regret doing that and it's my job to make sure that you make good decisions you know yeah it's really tricky what would you say has been the most challenging thing about raising your kids as a single mum um other people's reactions to it uh I genuinely um and I say this with my heart and I think actually I'm more at peace with it than I am being a disabled mum because I still get if I'm totally honest, I still get frustrated by the limitations that my disability puts on me, um, which is totally normal and valid. And it doesn't mean that I'm not happy to be disabled. I am. 
but it's a constant work in progress but with being a single mom I 100% know that this is the right way for our family to operate and we are so we are so comfortable with how it operates and with yeah it's just the it's just the right way and I know I know that public perception is like but it's always better if the dad is there and has an active role and lives nearby and and yada 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 and um I th- so I think coming up against that is a bit tricky because I'm always coming up against that mm. and also just like the 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 public perception that you know because I'm disabled and stuff and you know uh he left me or he cheated on me or or um or the, or that I should be pitied in some way because of all of this situation or and it's like no because I'm really happy being a single parent I'm really happy the only thing that I find a bit difficult sometimes is is the kind of weight of tackling a particular parenting issue with my kids all falling to me um yeah but then that happens a lot in in coupled families as well (laughs) if we're like brutally honest a lot of the times the mum feels like they're they're the only person they're the bad guy make those decisions that can yeah lay down the law uh so yeah and also things like you know not inviting me on a night out with with other school parents because all the others are in a couple and and I think they don't do it because they're worried that I'd be offended or jealous or or there'd be a weird dynamic and I'm like I'll be fine because I'm not jealous like I'm cool let's go and have a drink you know um but there's definitely something there around that as well and it's just like oh you know but how have you found that have you found that you know is there a school parents community that you've tapped managed to tap into or do you feel like you're on the fringes yeah I like coming I like having the option I guess so like for example uh one of the school mums texted me the other day and said hey I'm I'm putting together a group for this problem of this social event of of school parents do you want to come and I think it's because she knew that I probably wouldn't, but I appreciate the invite, right? And for that particular thing, I didn't. But sometimes I do. Like, it just depends, right? And so, yeah, I guess just not letting, like, preconceptions inform whether or not I'm included um, yeah. and and giving me the option like you would anyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I like being on the fringes. I've got a few like school parents who are friends of mine, but we're not a group. But that's how I work as a person. Like all none of my friends are friends. Um, and that's how I like it like that. So that's nothing to do with being a, a school mum or anything. It's just how I, I work better. I don't work very well in big groups. Um, I find I, I get quite anxious. So um so yeah, but I do like a group thing every now and again, especially to like especially because I recognise the significance, especially when your kids are young, yeah. of making those connections with other parents. Yeah, yeah. And how important is it to you for your kids to see you living as a proud disabled woman? Oh, so important. So important. Not sure about proud as a word, but definitely as somebody who's totally accepting and tackles things head on and knows that the disability is is 
not the problem when it's we're facing ableism or inaccessibility and stuff um that is so important it would be important to me even if they weren't disabled um but but because they are i know that that is my job to instill that in them and because the world is telling them something different all the time it's a lifelong practice that i have to do um so yeah no it's it's really important and what kind of conversations are you having with them about their disability you know and their experiences i guess of other people's attitudes they're coming up against at school and other places yeah i mean we they so far <laughs> have been quite lucky in school definitely um i think the second has been more lucky because the first went through the school first and so it's less of a shock right mm-hmm. um but you know there haven't been that many um that many over instances of discrimination or whatever um but we we talk about it all the time but just kind of offhandedly we'll we'll be like oh yeah and, you know you can't do that because or we can't do that rather because we have dwarfism but we can do this another way or I try and show them things that we can do other ways and and um and while acknowledging that it is harder and it is frustrating because you know there's there's nothing worse than kind of having your feelings your frustrations and your grief around not being able to do things that a non-disabled person can dismissed or minimized and so it's definitely important to me to hear you know any frustrations they have and and acknowledge them and often um validate them with my own similar frustrations that I had at their age or whatever um as well as uplifting them and empowering them and stuff like that that's brilliant um Kathy thank you so much for chatting to me today um the book we've got this is out now but tell us where can we find you online to hear uh, more about what you're writing and what you're saying sure so it's a bit complicated my handle but my handle is Kathy Ray writes on Instagram and Twitter so that's Kathy C-A-T-H-Y-R-E-A-Y and then the word writes W-R-I-T-E-S which everybody puts writer and I wish I had just put writer but never mind <laughs> it's writes with an S at the end um, so yeah on Instagram and Twitter and uh, yeah more more book stuff from me this year so stay exciting. tuned exciting exciting thank you so much for joining me today Kathy. thank you for having me Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.